Welcome on in to the third episode of Greens with Envy. I'm your host, Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, alongside the magazine's editor, Guy Cipriano. Guy, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing great, Matt. And this episode is going to be more about a journey you took as opposed to somewhere I've been recently. So, Matt, you were at Desert Golf Giant Desert Mountain a few weeks ago. 25 square miles of property. Yeah, for our listeners who aren't familiar, tell them what Desert Mountain's all about. So, I was out in Phoenix. You just got back from Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. So, while I was off actually writing about golf, which is what we do, you were off hiking mountains and looking at geysers and trying to take selfies with bison and not get attacked by bears. Uh, I was out in the Phoenix area, a little bit north of Phoenix at Desert Mountain, about a 30-year-old golf community, and it is enormous. It is 8,000 acres. It is 25 square miles. It is now seven courses. The latest one is actually called Seven. It's a par 54 course that they think could really change uh, how golf is approached by by folks new to the game. Uh, and it is just an incredible compound. It is also very hot, but as only one person said while I was out there, eh, it's a dry heat. Only one person in four days in Phoenix said dry heat, which made me smile because 115 is still 115. Yeah, and Matt, that was really the first time that you've been to a big, sprawling golf community like that. You've been to some cool right. places since you started at Golf Course Industry. You've been to Trinity Forest and and Four Seasons Las Colinas. And Great courses. Quail Hollow and TPC Deer Run and, and Corrales down at Punta Cana. But what was your impression of, of a large, giant, private golf community stepping onto one for the first time? Well, I mean, the first impression is just that even with so much desert and less grass, the sheer maintenance of, of the place. I mean, you've got a lot of desert flora and fauna. I don't know if that's the right term for desert growth. Uh, but just the sheer maintenance of everything uh, was, was overwhelming. And Sean Emerson and his team there, who are responsible for the, the seven courses, it's a crew of about 180. Uh, the operating budget is usually about $18 million uh, for the seven courses. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. Uh, the amount of work and the the amount of time and manpower that really needs to go into that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Sean Emerson. He's the director of agronomy, and I think one of the pe- things that people don't understand is that to become a Sean Emerson in the golf world, you really have to know everything about everything. What were your impressions of of him and how he runs the operation? Well, and I mean, he was raised to know everything too. I mean, he's the son of a of a legendary. Uh, uh, superintendent, of course. I almost say groundskeeper because I, I just watched Caddyshack over the weekend, and that's where my mind is. How many times have you seen that movie? Just Caddyshack? Yeah. Well, three dozen? Well, I, I would have thought it would it'd be more judging by how your, your desk looks and all the Bill Murray memorabilia that you have. Oh, Bill Murray's Bill Murray. He turned 69 on, uh, on Saturday, actually. Uh, so, happy birthday, William James Murray. Um... No, I mean, Sean Emerson, it was the first time I really met him. Uh, We'd exchanged some emails beforehand. We spent about 26, 28, 30 hours together over the course of three days. There's a a cover package forthcoming in the next issue of GCI. And the level of institutional knowledge, tribal knowledge that he has there 
over more than 20 years there is it it's incredible and it's just what you can't get uh, if you're moving on every five to seven years when you have the same leadership in place year after decade for 20 years or 25 years as, as he's going on um you know you, you're able to put more trust in your superintendents and they're able to put more trust in their assistants and then you can put more trust into your crew and it just it it really is a trickle down and uh, they've got such a culture there there's one thing that really hit me and it was early on when we were talking probably in the first hour that we were together that they speak nine languages uh, scattered across the crew and there's English and there's Spanish obviously and I think there's French and Arabic um blanking on the others last year it was russian but i don't think they have any russians on the crew this year and one of the things they do is obviously english and spanish are spoken on every course but they put all the guys and some women who who speak the same language together on one crew so you're not trying to speak nine different languages it's not a tower of babel on each course you have english and french and spanish on one course you have english and spanish and arabic on another course, and so you've got almost like this little United Nations um, across all the golf courses, but it works because the guys are working together and they're able to communicate together. Uh, I hadn't seen a course with nine languages spoken. That was pretty cool. Desert Mountain's in a full-blown construction mode. They have a lot of earth moving and a lot of projects going on. You mentioned that they have recently opened the seven course, but what else is going on there in the construction end? And I know we're going to be touching on a lot of this in our October issue. Right. So the first six courses were were Nicholas Design. And one of the things that was pointed out was you could almost see the evolution of Jack's design over 25 or 30 years. The latest renovation was by Nicholas Design, but not Jack himself. Um, And it was on Renegade. So they basically took Renegade, a, a traditional championship-level 18-hole course, par 72, and it's still a great course, but now you've got uh, tee areas rather than tee boxes. Uh, you've got multiple greens on every hole, and so you've got all these options. You can play uh, up to, I think, almost 8,000 yards, and you can play it differently every single time. And there were some complaints as you would expect, you know, folks who are set in their ways, who play this course every every day or a few times every week for months and years, and they weren't happy about the changes. Uh, there have been fewer complaints as time has gone on. But they did the Renegade renovations while they were doing the seven construction. And so you had two different contractors who were getting sources from the same companies. They had the same sand guy. So the same sand guy was basically trying to supply 110,000 tons of sand, which is just an absurd amount even in the desert. And to do these projects concurrently, I got out there obviously well after they were finished. They've been done for a little bit now. But even at that point, the sheer level of exhaustion and just glad to be done with it um, was still pretty evident. They were high and they were giddy on on the fact that these projects were done but it was almost like, ah, whew, there we go. You were there during summer. What type of golfer activity was out on the courses? Did you notice <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people playing golf? It's not really the season out there. I mean, the season yeah. starts, it's coming up, but in, in late August, right before Labor Day, um, I think seven, one day that I was there, I believe it had six or eight players 
we might have seen two. And this is a course that right after it had opened up, kind of in season, it had attracted, you know, about 130 to 140, maybe 150 golfers on a, on a high day. And that's a par 54. Uh, the other courses, they have some that are warm weather courses and some that are warm weather grasses, some that are cool weather grasses. So they rotate, so they're not all shut down at the same time. You have to keep, obviously, a number of the courses open at all times. Um, And that was one of the things, too, is that they are now growing uh, bent grass in the desert, which we can get into in a few minutes, but it's just the variety of grasses. We did not go where there were a lot of golfers by design. I was looking at courses right outside their season. But they try to keep each course open a give or take, about nine months, maybe 10 months, but mostly about nine months out of the year, each of those seven. You spent parts of three days there, right? Mm -hmm. What percentage of the property would you estimate you saw? (laughs) 10%. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's 25 square miles. It's 25. Like, go run five miles and then turn and go run five miles more and then take a right and turn five miles more and take a right and run five miles more. You've just run the perimeter. Like, it's enormous. It's, it's mind-blowing. And it bumps up against a national forest, uh, so you can't even really run the perimeter. It's, it's, it's just a mind-bogglingly big property. Okay, now that you've been on a huge private golf community mm-hmm. like that, how important do you think a place like Desert Mountain is to the economy of uh, Phoenix Scottsdale? Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Because it's just not golf it's it's right it's homes and it's all the other amenities i think that's one thing yeah. that maybe the person that's not involved in golf fully understands is what what these communities contribute to the local economies that they're in and that's the thing like if you're trying to buy a house on just seven like a new house on seven the new par 54 i think the floor to get in is a million and a half i think that's i could be wrong i think that's the floor but i mean you've got properties that are Three, four, five million dollars easily, and I think the number that Sean mentioned was there's about one point two, maybe it's one point three billion dollars in real estate at Desert Mountain, and that's and that's the biggest, but that's one golf community in a very big golf centric uh, city and region. Yeah, I, I've been to Phoenix Scottsdale twice in the last year, and. Both times I was there, I, I hiked to the top of uh, Camelback Mountain, and it's mm-hmm. interesting when you get yeah. up there, you look down, and you can kind of see golf courses all, all over the place. It's Everywhere. just not Desert Mountain. That's a little private community, and it's a little bit tougher to see from some of the main drags, but yeah. there are courses everywhere there, and I the, and two, why time, not? the yeah. two times I've been up on Camelback Mountain, I'm kind of thinking, like, how much of this valley would exist if it wasn't for golf? Well, I mean, the last morning that I was there... Uh, I'm a little bit of an architecture buff, not as much as some of my friends, but I love architecture. And Frank, and Lloyd... he's not talking golf course architecture. No, he's no, like actual building, building archi- architecture. architecture. Yeah. So Frank Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, the great great architect um, of the the first half of the 20th century, wintered in Phoenix at Taliesin West, and his summer home was in Wisconsin. Uh, I think it was near Madison. Yep. Regular Taliesin, original Taliesin. And he and his caravan, his third wife and, and his caravan of apprentices would basically take a giant road trip from Wisconsin, about 2,000 miles from Wisconsin to Phoenix every year for 23, 24 years. Um, 
and and they built up all of this this giant compound, building after building, and there was not glass for years and years. And he would take meetings there, but you had to want to get there. It was like twenty five miles north of Phoenix. Like it was not easy to get to in the thirties and forties and fifties. A little easier now. But you just look at that, and you're thinking, well, what was here in the 30s and 40s and 50s? And there was not much. I mean, you look at the population uptick in Phoenix over the last 40 or 50 years, and that's about when it really started to, to hit. And now it's, what, 4 million people in the region, I think, give or take. Uh, Phoenix is, if it's not the most populated capital city in the country, it's it's two or three. It, it's over a million people in Phoenix proper. And then the the region is, I think, four million. Uh, without golf, I mean, it it it's hot. Like you have to want to live. I think in Phoenix, just like you have to. We're in Cleveland. You have to want to live in Cleveland because you have winter there. You have just raging summer. You know, it's it's one hundred fifteen degrees and without air conditioning and golf. Uh, I don't think there'd be many people in Arizona. In fact, it's growing so quick that one of the uh, venerable golf courses there, the Karsten course at Arizona State, actually shuttered, shuttered this year because yeah. they needed room for more uh, campus buildings and student housing. So, I mean, that's something that probably nobody imagined 20 years ago that this great design on the Arizona State campus would, would have to close. But uh, you mentioned that Desert Mountain's a very innovative place, Matt. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize the, the people that work there? Are they intense? Are they laid back? Are they... Are they confident and have a quiet intensity? How would you describe the team that Sean has in place? I think if you hang around with Sean long enough, and, and you know you can't really know somebody in three days, but you can get ideas for, for I think, what they're like. There's a mastery of the industry, obviously, you know, born into it and, and worked in it for decades and decades. But you surround yourself with competent people, and he has great superintendents, on every course, and, and they've got great assistants, and they've got great crew members. The one thing that really stood out to me, and this will be in the cover story, is the use of statistics and analytics. And Sean has kind of turned to analytics for, for quite a while, and obviously the operating budget allows them to do that. They are, what, I think they're the biggest single user of, of Rainbird irrigation. They're the single biggest user of John Deere, and through John Deere, they kind of got more into um, monitoring every single machine, the OnLink system that John Deere just bought earlier this year. And they have kind of been monitoring everything for years. And so they'll monitor how fast a mower goes. They'll monitor how many, I don't think yet they're monitoring how many steps guys will take to walk mow a green, um, but paths of, of mowers and, you know, every single reading. And, and you're not going by feel anymore. Like when Sean's dad was was in his heyday, you know, you went by feel. You went by intuition. Well, this feels soft. Let's let's water it some more. And there are no gut feelings anymore. Um, Sean's dived completely into analytics. And, and part of that, too, we got into this a little bit. His younger brother, Scott, is the pitching coach for the Oakland Athletics, one of the more analytics-heavy Major League Baseball teams. If you've never read, and I know you have, but if you're listening and you've never read Michael Lewis's Moneyball or seen the movie. That's a great look 15 years ago uh, about how kind of analytics and, and advanced research went into building a baseball team. And so Scott's involvement with the A's, I think, has rubbed off a little bit on Sean um, to kind of look at things a little differently and to measure everything uh, and to be able to work more efficiently, even to the point where Sean's son Jacob is is developing stats that are kind of being used by the A's, uh, at least one. 
Um, but where I'm going with this in terms of the intensity or, or the work ethic is the, it's such a, a, an awful line to say work harder, not, or work smarter, not harder. But they actually do work smarter at Desert Mountain to the point where in the last year or so, uh, they've been able to cut four hours a week uh, from all of their managers. I think it's down to about 50 to 52 hours a week from 54 to 56. Um, Sean doesn't want people to really work more than 50 hours a week. He doesn't show up until about 7.30. The crew starts about 5.30, and they're done by noon. Um, and those guys love it because they can then go work a second job if they have to or if they want to in the afternoons. But And uh, you know, you're not working a ton of hours. You're working much smarter, uh, and you are working a lot more efficiently, whether that means using more money or not. So cutting four hours from your work week, what takes four hours? Anything, everything, if you're able to but do stuff. But what takes four hours that a lot of people in our industry say they don't have time to do? I mean, if you're going out into the course multiple times from a maintenance can, facility. I'll, I'll help you out here. Sure. You can play around a golf in four hours. Oh, So a lot of people in yeah, our industry, course. one of the biggest things that I hear <laughs> when I travel and talk Duh. to superintendents is that they don't have enough time to play golf for whatever right. reason. Well, there's well, a round. If, if you can somehow find a way to cut your work week by four hours, you know, work 56 hours instead of 60 hours during right. the summer or 44 to 40 or whatever the number is, you have time to play golf once a week. Yeah. I didn't realize that's how you're – well, Matt, what takes four hours? I'm like, I don't know. Drive, it should take what? Driving out from the maintenance shed back and forth and having to have meetings in the maintenance building actually, rather than on the course. we can go on a different course. rant here. Golf no, should you just take, mean the course. Golf should take less than four hours to play. But. There's there's actually a great uh, – there's a great sign. I think it's in one of the – I think it's in the um, – the Renegade Clubhouse, and I'm going to try to look it up right now. It's uh, where is it? Sorry, this is this is great radio. Looking for a sign on your your well, photo roll. Okay, here it is. So it's got the Desert Mountain logo on it. I think this is in the Renegade Clubhouse. Golf is a game of a lifetime. It shouldn't take you a lifetime to play it. Desert Mountain. Our pace of play is four hours or less. <laughs> I love that. There you go. The PGA Tour should have dot. Adopt that uh, that <laughs> policy and the LPGA and the Champions Tour and the Euro- European Tour. Everybody. Now, I will say the, the par 54-7 course, um, I played that with Mike Gracie, who was the superintendent of Renegade while they were under construction, uh, and he's since moved to other, or other projects on the property. So we played together. I'm not much of a golfer. Mike's a much better golfer than I am. And, and we didn't play best ball. We just played around ourselves together. Uh, I think we finished in... A tick over two hours. Did you walk or take a cart? We should have walked. We took a cart. Was well, not my call. Not my call. We already had Mike's. We had Mike's. I'm not calling Mike. We, we had. I know Mike's he was in the already. middle of his work day. I'm calling Matt. It was. We had. We had Mike's cart already. Uh, he drove over from the uh, from the maintenance building in Renegade. Well, Matt, if you want to compare our Arizona golf journeys, yeah. I got I got to go there in January, which I guess the weather is probably a little more conducive to golf. In probably January about eighty degrees than it is in August. And, yeah. Uh, Got to play Mountain Shadows with architect uh, right. Forrest Richardson, and and we manned up and we we, we walked that. I lo- that you course. know what I feel about walking on a course. I love walking on a course. It's one of my favorite things. Now I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah. You can't, you, even though Matt's almost five months into this now. Uh, six. Yeah, I, have, yeah. I still have to haze him a, yeah. a little bit. No, of course. So you mentioned bent grass. Yeah. Give our listeners a little sneak preview of our upcoming story, but don't 
give the whole thing away so they don't want to read the story. Yeah, so Sean Emerson had wanted to switch to bent grass on Renegade for years. And one of the big things is they overseed every fall. Uh, and each course is anywhere between about three to $400,000 per overseed out there. Um, Which Rene- is more than the maintenance budget at a lot of courses right. in the United I States. Right. I mean, you think about that. That was about $2.5 million for the then six courses. Um, and by going to Bent Grass on Renegade, they would, would be able to not overseed um, as often. Uh, it would cut back on, obviously, overseed costs. It would cut back on maintenance costs. It would look better. And the, the wild thing is, even in heat that gets up to 115 degrees in the summer, it worked in their little weather environment because of the elevation. They're, I think, almost a mile up. Um, I think it's about 3,000 feet, actually, up. So a little more than a half mile up. Uh, it's very dry. They have humidity that maybe peaks at about 40% when it's 110, 115 degrees outside. And it's just such a strange little weather pocket that it works. Weather-wise, agronomy-wise, it works for Desert Mountain. It might not work elsewhere even in the Phoenix metro area, but it works for them. And so that's one of the things that, yeah, we'll dive a little bit more into in the October cover story. Uh, Desert Mountain is the the lead of our construction and renovation issue uh, because of the Renegade project, because of the seven project kind of running concurrently with each other. Um, and, and that was one of the things we talked about at length. And again, it doesn't work for everybody. It probably doesn't work for many courses, but it works there because of the, the environment that obviously financially as well on top of that. But if it does work, you will definitely be seeing other courses. Oh, for sure. Do it. But it's, it's one of those things where there's no cut and dry rule. It's, it's a case-by-case basis, obviously, uh, and you have to really kind of take into account all the factors that would play in on your course. Um, and it, again, it probably doesn't work for many, but yeah, the ones where it will work, uh, I hope we see it a little bit more. It is an interesting trend if it becomes a trend. What's the water situation like <sighs> in Arizona right now? I actually went to a meeting with Sean of the, and I don't have my notes with me, I don't think, so I'm going to botch exactly what it's called. It's the what is it? It's the, the of the Cactus and Pines chapter of the GCSAA. It's the Phoenix Water Conservant. No, I can't remember. Anyway, it was a, it was a water meeting. Uh, a number of superintendents and some other industry supporters, and they have quarterly meetings uh, to kind of deal with everything that's going to go on in the years coming up in terms of water usage. Um, it's, it's a big deal out there and they are kind of at the forefront because they're part of that state's group where they get a lot of their water from, uh, California. So California, it's an issue, but it's not as big of an issue from Arizona or as in Arizona, because Arizona doesn't have a lot of its own water. Uh, they had a drought for quite a while. It's not as bad at this moment. Um, but that factored in with everything else. It's something that's going to have to be looked at a lot in the coming years, there are going to be a lot of courses that probably do close, and they're probably going to be the municipal courses uh, that close and, and are used for other purposes. That's speculation, um, but it's it's educated speculation. And definitely an area of the country to watch, and I'm not saying it could soon affect everybody, but if water 
is going to be a point of contention wherever you work and live at any point in the next 20 years. Definitely worth looking at what's going on in Phoenix and in Arizona at large, uh, just because it's probably going to hit there first before anywhere else. Did you see any rattlesnakes in Arizona? I didn't see a rattlesnake. I saw one snake move, I jumped, and I kept back in the cart. Wuss. Yeah, well, I'm not going to get bit. I have a friend who hikes the AT every, the Appalachian Trail every summer with his kids, and he he got bit by something, and he almost uh, he almost passed out, and I don't know. I'm not gonna say he almost died, but he had to crawl to a a, a lodge and and take some aspirin or Benadryl from some kind fellow hikers, and then he woke up the next day after sweating it all out the night before. I I don't have that luxury. I'm gonna take care of myself. Self preservation. Okay, let's not scare anyone from working on a golf course. If you go no. back into the golf course industry archives, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. A young editor wrote a cover story. A young guy, Cipriano. In December 2015 about snake management on the golf courses. In fact, we talked to some experts in Arizona, and it's really nothing to be afraid of as long as you use common sense. Yeah, but I don't see snakes a lot, so I wasn't used to it. So I'm like, "Uh, I'm going to hightail it out of here. I still think you're a wuss, but... Eh, whatever. (laughs) You're entitled to your opinion. (laughs) Whatever. So, no, on a serious note, Note, Matt. Yeah. What were your final impressions? Like when you were flying home from Arizona, besides being tired from all all the meetings and tours and interviews and and note taking, what were your final impressions on on the flight home? Well, I mean, other than the fact that I would have loved to have stayed a little longer, but I probably would have annoyed Sean and everybody else. They were very generous with their time. Was just how involved and how much goes into operating. I mean, again, it, it's on a scale. So you have to kind of assume more acres, more square miles, more courses. There's going to be more that goes on, but I mean just how massive an operation it really is. And and how they it's not easy, but how they make it look easy just because they do have so many quality people there. Um would love to get out to some more larger multi-course facilities like that pretty soon. Yeah, they are really are amazing places and the people that are director of agronomy or head superintendent or director of golf course operations or whatever title the place bestows on them are amazing people. You don't become right. a Sean Emerson at Desert Mountain or a Larry Napora at Firestone Country Club or a Bob Farron at Pinehurst or Kelly Shoemate at the Greenbrier without knowing everything about the operation. They're really right. impressive people that run these multi-course operations and they have to deal with so many factions too they have to deal with homeowners maybe oh, yeah. a, maybe a single owner maybe you know a, a ton of owners or their private their equity or resort guests or yeah. daily fee players just all the different constituencies you have to deal with the, the, when you're working at a facility of that size and that level uh you know like i said the, the, they're some of the most impressive people you meet in the industry the people that are at the head of those operations and once you meet them and spend some time with them you know that they're in that position for for a damn good reason. And one of the things that Sean does with each of his superintendents, um, actually got to, to go to this meeting as well while I was out there, is he's working with all of them, um, with Alex Ward on Renegade, with Ryan Williams on Seven, um, on and on. And, and I met uh, probably four, maybe five of the seven core superintendents, all great. Um, he's working with them more and more on finances and building a budget and going line by line and seeing what costs here, what costs here. Because one of the things he said 
Um, he's had about 30 or 35 superintendents work under him over the years, and maybe four of them have really mastered the financial end of the business, have really mastered the building a budget and, and being able to manage everything. Um, not that they can't do some of it, but only about four guys have managed to master all of it. And uh, it's one of the things that he, he works with his guys on is you, know, you can't really know what to do out on the course if you don't know how much it all costs. Now, he'll handle the course politics. You know, he doesn't expect them to jump in, you know, even year two or three or four and do that. But, uh, you know, teaching your assist well, not their, not assistants, they're not assistants, but kind of teaching the folks you're working with um, the financial end of things. It kind of goes into uh, what Henry Delosier's been writing about the last couple of months, um, becoming a course of, uh, of choice. And, uh, and then uh, our recent column, uh, assisting your assistants, just in, uh, in this past issue. Uh, that was not Henry who wrote that one. Tim Morgan. Did. Thank you. Sorry, Tim, whose whose wife Karen was was also very helpful on this trip. And th- th- that's a great point. Uh, sometimes people keep their assistants in the dark, whether it's right. in the golf industry or all industries. And you'll find that the most successful leaders you meet try to train their assistant in all aspects of the operation and that's something we're trying to do here at golf course industry hopefully matt you feel that you've been included in everything you know we, we I, I try to attach you in as many emails as possible I'm trying to work with you on budgeting as we get into that process that year don't view your assistant or your your your, your managing superintendent or associate superintendent as a threat you're truly right. are partners and if something happens to you and you're you're, you're the head of operation well guess what guess who's responsible now yeah, somebody else. Your has assistant to have it. is, yeah. and if they're, if if they're not ready, uh, that could be your your behind that's that's on the line there. So really, uh, train as many people up as you can in every aspect of the operation because that's going to help you. And I think that is going to bring us to the next point of this podcast. It's important to step away sometimes. Yeah, so. We're going to step away from Desert Mountain. We've given you enough of a preview of the cover story. And, and again, thanks to Sean and everybody else uh, at Desert Mountain. Had a fantastic time out there. Hope some of you listen to this podcast. So Guy just got back, and our producer, Patrick Williams, just got into the studio a few minutes ago. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Matt. What's going on? Uh, just watching you fact-check me and tell me that Phoenix is the most populous capital city in the U.S. Thanks. True. By far. Yeah. 1.7 million people. Um, so Guy just got back last night from an actual vacation. And in that vacation, you saw one golf course and you didn't stop at it, which is a rarity for you. Yeah, so I had a chance to go to uh, Grand Teton National Park, followed by Yellowstone National Park. And the only golf course we saw on the trip was we landed at Jackson Hole Airport on a Friday afternoon and our route from Jackson Hole Airport to our condo took us past uh, Jackson Hole Golf and Tennis Club. So that's really the first thing I saw. I noticed that even before I noticed the Tetons. And the Tetons tower above everything is, uh, yeah, so we're driving to the condo and uh, pass a golf course. And I pointed out to my girlfriend, and she she could care less, like, all matters related to golf. And we got to the condo, and our condo was really between two fabulous golf courses uh shooting star golf club in teton village wyoming and teton pines resort 
and golf club in Wilson, Wyoming. And honestly, I didn't see one piece of turf on either of those courses. So really, it was a golf-free nine days out west. Now, I did have some golf visions in my head uh, at Yellowstone. We hiked something called Bunsen Peak near the Mammoth area of the park, and that was 8,600 feet. And we got to the top, and I looked down, and I see Swan Lake and some uh, creeks and the road and some beautiful mountain views and the clouds. And I go to my girlfriend, I go, wow, this land down there would be great for a golf course. And I thought she was going to push me off Bunsen <sighs> Peak. She's like, really? You can't get away from it? And, you know, it's I, a national I, park, I, I was kind of like a golf course architect up there just staring down and I just saw amazing land. Uh, I don't think we'll ever see a golf course in Yellowstone National Park. But, yeah, it was great to step away. Uh, I'm probably like a lot of our listeners. I'm go, go, go all the time. It takes a lot to get me away for for that long. It takes me a lot to get me away even for a weekend. I'm kind of always thinking about it and it's always on my mind and I'm always looking at things or try, trying to advance our publication you know, in a subtle way somehow, but it was cool to get away. And, uh, you know, you hear a lot of people in this industry say, I can't get away during the busy season or there's no way I would be able to get away. My bosses won't let that. Well, that's where having a capable assistant or associate or, or, or managing or whatever the title is person on your team, that's, you know, there, there, there are tons of benefits to it. But one of the great benefits is that you can really get away if you trust that person under you and you've trained them how to do a lot of tasks. You're able to get away and you can trust that person. And Matt, you did a wonderful job when I'm when I was away. Uh really didn't feel like um I was missing anything. I really didn't even feel like I was needed. You were handling everything. And that, that that's a good feeling to have. Some people may feel threatened yeah. by that feeling, but that's that's what you want. You want as many people to know how to do as many tasks as possible because when we talk about industry burnout or, or work burnout or work-life balance, a lot of those problems are you put them on yourself and you put them on yourself because you, you don't trust others to do some of the work that you do on a daily basis. Well, you took me out for lunch and you bought me an Impossible Burger at Big Boy for essentially putting out one podcast and handling Facebook and Twitter, making sure a newsletter went out, um, making sure the building didn't burn down. I didn't even answer your emails and I didn't answer your phone. So I don't know what I actually did. I actually did check my email at the top of Bunsen Peak because that was one of the few, few parts of uh, Yellowstone where you could get, you just can't get reception. Uh, no, I mean, you get reception there. And you're like, oh, my goodness. Now I, I can see what's going on with the world. Even though you go there to detach from the world, you do feel um, detached for a while. But you kind of feel exhilarated when you get that connection back. It's an, it's an odd feeling. You know, my wife, Carolyn booked a trip last week that she's wanted to do for a while so you went and i'm this is not to upstage you at all i'm just mentioning this for this fact you went to uh yellowstone and, and the tetons and we next june are going to alaska we're gonna check out denali we're gonna go to the midnight sun baseball game it's gonna be really cool and she booked some cabins and there are a couple cabins that are completely solar powered because you have 24 hour sun up there basically at that time of year and they don't have electrical outlets and part of me is just totally jacked to go somewhere where there are no electrical outlets. It, yeah, and that, that that sounds cool. But I'm actually, I wouldn't say I get like nervous about work. I'm a fairly confident person. But I find that I can relax better when I have at least a little bit idea of what's going on back home. 
than having mm. no I- idea at all. But everyone's different. I've had this conversation with superintendents, whether they check in or, or not. And some people say, no, I don't check in. And other people say that they do just because they want that idea of what's going on and that makes it easier for them to rel- relax. So I guess it's all personal preference. But Matt, have you ever been to Yellowstone? Yosemite, not Yellowstone. The other Y. Yeah, that, that's probably a trip for a, a, a different year. But uh, Yellowstone kind of reminds me of something that I've seen in the golf world. Do you want to hear this analogy? Yellowstone reminds you of something you've seen in the golf world. I have no idea where you're going with this. Yeah, so we were we spent four days in the Tetons and five days at Yellowstone. And on the final day at Yellowstone, we were hiking up a peak called Purple Mountain. The whole like time at Yellowstone, I'm like, this place reminds me of somewhere in golf. Not so much the landscape, but how people view and approach the place and the the uh, how they interpret the the land and what it means to them. And I'm hiking up Purple Mountain, and I'm like, it hits, it, mm-hmm. it hit me. It's like this reminds me of the Masters. <laughs> and people are probably like, how does a national park <laughs> in Wyoming and Montana remind you no, of? It the, makes sense. The Masters. Well, there are a lot of aggravating things about Yellowstone. Like, it's tough to park. Some of the main attractions are too crowded. You have people just randomly hitting the brakes and taking pictures while you're trying to drive. You have wildlife jams. You don't get cell reception. There are a lot of aggravations to do Yellowstone. And I'm like, it's kind of like the Masters, right? Like, it's tough to get a ticket. Mm -hmm. Traffic's horrible near Augusta National. uh, You can't get service because you can't take your cell phone out on the course. You can't take your cell phone out on the course. I guess that's a debate for a different day. (laughs) But everybody leaves Augusta National so happy. And when they're there, it's like they can't get enough of it. Well, I felt the same thing at Yellowstone. Like, the last day, it was like, you just want it more. Like, you our legs were exhausted. We did over 100 miles of hiking on the trip. We went up some grueling Wait, you hiked more than 100 miles? On the on the trip. Not in how many days? Eight, like eight full days. Wow. Okay. It was a nine-day trip, but really eight days where we had time to spend on parkland. And you had a half marathon coming up soon. I think you're going to be we, ready. We were go, go, go. But like towards the end, it's like we wanted to pull over and see one more hot spring or one more geyser or a mud hole or do one more two-mile hike. And it's kind of like that Augusta National. You just kind of get in there, and you want more of it during Masters just Week. Just one more no, pimento no, cheese yeah, sandwich. Yeah, no matter how, how much of a pain in the the bleep it is, you just want more of it. People can't get enough of it. Uh, I didn't buy any Yellowstone souvenirs. I'm not a souvenir person. But you go to Augusta National, and people wait almost like 45 minutes to get in the, the gift mm-hmm. shop just to buy something that's over overpriced. It's kind of like that at Yellowstone. Uh, it, it doesn't look like Augusta National. Obviously, they're not um, over overseeding or, uh, <laughs> or spraying right. the, the the landscape. It's, it's a little smellier. The yeah. geysers are a little smellier yeah, than but Augusta. It just the the way people feel about the place. It, it, it reminded me of Augusta National Golf Club huh. during the Masters. You just can't get enough of it. Uh, it's not like I said. It's not the easiest place to get to. It's not the easiest trip to make, and you just want more of it. And I think my girlfriend and I came up with the uh, the term that after five days of yellow stoning, we were yellow stoned. And I honestly have a headache today. I don't know if it's I have a Yellowstone hangover or what it is. Maybe I just didn't hydrate right on the on the flight home yesterday. But 
So there you go. I think those are two and, different and you know afflictions, what? though. Yellowstone you know and yellow hungover. You those know, are different things. As cool as Yellowstone is and as cool as Augusta National Golf Club is during the Masters, they're probably not the best in their league. You can make an argument that there's probably better national parks to go to than Yellowstone, and you can make the argument that they're better tournaments to go to than the masters but they have this aura right. and this mystique and and history and people feel so strongly about them that that uh they're just kind of viewed differently they're yellowstone's a mythical place and augusta national is a mythical place during during the masters and you know looking back on the trip the tetons were probably just as enjoyable as yellowstone but it, it was yellowstone you were there and you just c- couldn't get a, enough of it and you didn't see yogi bear right no, but we did see. Wait, wait, wait that's Jellystone. We, Jellystone. We did see two bears in uh, Grand Teton National Park, although they were from a distance and we couldn't get photos. In Yellowstone, we did see something in the town of Mammoth called the Elk Rut. Do you know what an Elk Rut is? The Elk Rut? Yeah. Like R U T? Yep. I have no clue. So it's the elk mating season. And Mammoth is a town. In the northern part of Yellowstone, it's got something called Mammoth Hot Springs, which is a popular tourist attraction, and some buildings, uh, you know, some cabins and a hotel and a, a nice visitor center. So uh, we're, we're hiking around or walking around the hot springs and hear this bugling, and we're like, wow, someone's got a weird uh, horn on their car. And then we hear it again, and I go to my girlfriend, I go, that ain't a horn. And then we look down and see about 10 elk, including a, a bull. Which do you know what a bull is? Like a like a male elk. Yep, yep. Yeah. With okay. Huge, huge antlers. Okay. Down there protecting uh, the cows and the and and the calves, and they're tying up the road. I mean, park rangers have to go out on the road to direct traffic. Uh, they weren't letting people that close to them. Although there were so many of them and so few rangers that you could get up and almost pet one if you wanted to, and nobody would really say a thing. So that that was interesting and. We also saw a lot of bison, which are fascinating animals to, to observe. And if you ever if you ever get a chance to go to those parks, I would say do it. They're not the easiest places to get to, but it, it's something that you'll remember for the rest of your life. But you know, to go on to the bigger issue here, just just step back and get away from work. I know everyone mm-hmm. everyone thinks they have to be at the golf course all the time. Uh, sometimes we think we have to be locked into the magazine all the time here, but you're going to be stronger for it. Uh, I wouldn't say that I feel burned out or I'm the type of person that needs a vacation, but when we got back last night, I was ready to go at work harder today and have some memories that are going to last a lifetime. We've done a few national parks, not any in the last few years, but yeah, I mean, there's only 61 of them, I think, now that there are a couple new ones this year. I think there's one new one in Kentucky. They're treasures. We need to enjoy them, and we need to kind of, yeah, I'm with you. Balance out life. Take some time away. Take a few days. Refresh yourself. Limit your hours like uh, Desert Mountain does with their managers and crew. Yeah, that's sound advice. Yep, golf courses and parks. What more do we need in this world? I'm, I'm good. Well, baseball stadiums? Gyms? Patrick, what else do we need in this world? Libraries? Libraries. Pools. Okay. In and out burger? Eh. I mean, it's good. Bojangles. Uh, well, yeah, but Patrick says Bojangles, but he didn't order any of the right things like sweet potato pies and first chicken time. biscuits. It's first time going. 
Yeah. Okay, well, we'll save the regional <laughs> fast food talk for that's another a, That's a different podcast. There's whole podcast about that. That's not our forte. I think that's it. I think we've run out of things to talk about All this right. episode. He's Guy Cipriano at GCI Magazine Guy. I'm Matt Lowell at M-A-T-T-L-A-W-E-L-L. You're listening to Greens with Envy, episode three, Way Out West. We'll catch you again with another great Superintendent Radio Network podcast next Tuesday. Until then, have a great week. Take care of yourself. And why?